Welcome to Everything Imaginable, a podcast for curious minds. KGRA Radio. Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I'm your host, Gary Cacciolillo, and today our guest is Chris Newby. Uh, she has written a book on Lyme disease. It's called Bitten, The Secret History of Lyme Disease and Biological Weapons. Thank you for being on the show. Well, thanks for inviting me, Gary, to talk about my favorite diseases. Yeah. Um, you know, so the I remember when Lyme disease first came out. I'm originally from New Jersey, and I think it was sometime when I first heard of it, I think it had to have been 1989, I think. And I had a neighbor who, who got, had Lyme disease, and I didn't know what it was. And uh, like basically, it, it, it crippled her because there was no treatment or they really didn't know much about it. And... Um, and then later on, my father had got it sometime in the 2000s. And they just put him like in like a heavy regimen of antibiotics and eventually it went away. Um, so how did you uh, become interested in Lyme disease? Well, uh, in, I was a tech writer in Silicon Valley in California. And uh, in 2002, my family all went to a beach vacation in Martha's Vineyard. It's right off, it's in Massachusetts, um, right near Cape Cod. And we had a wonderful week-long vacation, but when we went back to California, my husband and I got really sick with flu-like symptoms. I mean, we looked each other in the eye Sunday night and said, we have never been this sick before with serious flu-like symptoms. So, you know, headache and uh, crushing fatigue and every muscle in your body uh, hurts and fever and chills. And so the next day we went to the doctor together and they said, ah, oh, you know, you have a virus, it'll go away by itself. And, you know, a week later it was, uh, it was just worse than before. And we went back and they said, yeah, it's just a virus. You're just not being patient enough. And so anyways, that kind of thing, doctor after doctor went on for a year and it ended up taking us a year 10 doc doctors and $60,000 to finally get diagnosed with two tick-borne diseases, um, which are pretty serious. Lyme disease, Borrelia burgdorferi is a little bacterium spiral shape that causes that. And then babesiosis, which is a cattle parasite and it infects the red blood cells. So together that's a really nasty combo, hard to get over. And, uh, you know, that's when I first started getting interested in it because all of the 10 doctors I went to see, the first thing I said, I'm an engineer by training, you know, a science writer by trade. And the first thing I told every doctor is like, Hey, you know, here's our, our symptoms unfolded. It doesn't really match what's on the CDC site, but you know, we were on this Island where Lyme disease is uh, a real risk. There were beware of tick signs everywhere. We did tick checks, but you know, sometimes you don't see the ticks. And they all said, no, that's a rare disease. We're not even going to test you for it. And it's a pretty simple, inexpensive test. Instead, you know, we played for, paid for all these specialists and crazy tests, like 
tropical sprue. And I said, but we haven't been to the tropics or <laughs> AIDS or syphilis. You know, so, but, so, the, so they're testing you for every disease that's not common to that particular area and not the one that is. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, finally, I, we, we gave up with our community clinic. The infectious disease person said, well, it's just, uh, he, he thought, I was in that case, he had a psychosomatic disease. He said, well, you know, Silicon Valley is really stressful. And this is, we've had this disease for eight, nine months now, and we're pretty much debilitated. I mean, I could no longer work. I was holding onto one contract that I had as a freelance writer and my husband would go to work just because we needed health insurance, you know, because we had some disease that we were pretty sure is killing us. And we had two middle school boys at home and we didn't want them to be orphans. So he would go to work, but you know, our symptoms were so <laughs> serious. Like, um, you know, as middle school boys, you're taking them to school in the car and soccer practice and music practice. And I remember going down this road that I went down every day and I realized I was going the wrong way on a one-way road or I would get to a stoplight and the light would change and I couldn't remember what the difference was between red, green, and yellow. And I would go into a restaurant and I couldn't at auditory disturbances. I couldn't like, uh, listen to the conversation at my table. It was the same volume as the conversation at the table across the restaurant, or I could no longer read Harry Potter books to my sons because I would read the first three words and I'd forget you know, I go to the fourth and I forget what the first three words are. So, and then my husband, he would go to work because we needed the insurance and he would be at the whiteboard giving some engineering uh, talk about what he's working on. And one time he was up there with a Sharpie at the, the whiteboard and he all of a sudden didn't know who he was or where he was or what he was talking about. So he turned around and looked at the people in the conference room and he said, excuse me, I have to leave. You know, it's what you have when you have that combo of tick-borne diseases is massive brain inflammation. And you just, it disables the executive functions and you can't function as a normal adult in the world. So anyways, we, we got to the point where we, we you know, my community-based phys physician, he was a, a specialist in infectious disease. He just... I fired him and I went to the, um, the academic medical center in my neighborhood and we got the, you know, the A team of infectious diseases doctors. And, you know, we went in there and they just gave us about somewhere between 10 and 20 specialized tests, including the AIDS and syphilis. Where my husband and I are looking at each other and, you know, we know we haven't been unfaithful. Um, but they did test us for Lyme disease. It was the first doctor who, when I gave him my spreadsheet said, you know, we were on Martha's Vineyard. It was, at that year, it was number one spot for Lyme disease in the nation. Now it's Pennsylvania. It gets that honor. And, uh, and so he did all those tests. And then we came back and he had this fat folder of the test results a couple a week or two later. And he went through them. And the only one that was positive was Lyme disease. And then he looked at us and said, well, it can't be Lyme disease for, because for both of you to get it would be like winning the lottery. So, you know, after that whole process, uh, and they fired us as patients, they said they were implying we were hypochondriacs because that test was a bad test. I don't know if it was a bad test, why they gave it to us. 
I insisted that they tested it again and it came positive back positive for me again when I insisted that. So I have two positive tests. To me, that says at least pursue the Lyme thing, but they said, we don't have the tools to treat you here for Lyme disease. And they fired us as patients, which was devastating because by that time I was, I felt like I was dying. Uh, but so I went on the internet, <laughs> I did Dr. Google and I put my symptoms into, uh, you know, my symptoms were sort of similar to Lyme disease and I put it onto a chat board and immediately some helpful angel on the East coast who was up late said, Hey, <laughs> those are classic Lyme symptoms and they're not the same as in the medical textbooks. And here's a doctor in your neighborhood. She's really good. And so we went to her and then, you know, within a couple months we saw progress improvement of our symptoms. And so, so that it, it got to the point where I said, wow, uh, this, this is a serious problem. And I, you know, I think it's an educational problem. Somehow the doctors aren't getting the memo on what this disease is really like. So I thought, well, easy solution. I'll do a documentary. <laughs> you know, I'm an engineer. I could do anything. And so then I started going to grand rounds at Stanford and gathering information. And, and uh, then another filmmaker in Marin at the same time is Andy Abrahams Wilson had the same idea because he had a really good friend who had Lyme disease and he saw how the medical system mistreated her. And so anyways, we, we, we were after the same information I said, hey, I don't know that much about filmmaking, but I know how to do research and writing. And I, you know, I had done screenwriting. I said, let's combine forces. So that started our uh, three and a half year project where we just, we started talking, or I guess the film really talked about the patient experience of Lyme patients in the U.S. And uh, we interviewed, we got 350 hours of interviews with Lyme patients from all over the U.S., talked to experts all over the U.S., and then we condensed those 350 hours, you know, into an hour and a half feature-length documentary, and um, it was really well-received. We won, like, 20 documentary awards. It's called Under Our Skin, and we, uh, it was a semifinalist for the Oscars, in 2010, um, it didn't make to the finals. So anyways, that's where I learned so much about it. And I, I it, it had a really um, deep impact on me because my family had suffered so much. And it really took five years for my husband and I to get back to full strength. Pretty much in a year, we were much better and we could work again, but to really lick those diseases was hard. A lot of antibiotics. So anyways, that's where I realized that the problem was really bad and uh, that affected me deeply. And ultimately, that was the reason I decided to write a book a few years later. Did you get like the, uh, the round bullseye mark when you were bitten by the tick? Well, my bite was um, at, at the back of my head in the hair, at the hairline level or right beneath the hairline or above the hairline. So, right. and I have long blonde hair, so I never saw a bullseye and maybe I had it. Maybe I didn't. I only knew that was the bite site because it flared up when I got antibiotics. And then 
it's this thing, it's called a tick bite granuloma. So it never quite healed itself. And I eventually had to have it. Uh, I just decided to have it surgically removed because I couldn't stand to have this weeping sore at the back of my head all the time. Yeah. Um, and, and what did you learn Doyle making the documentary? Um, you know, like, what, like, why was it so misdiagnosed all the time? Well, uh, it always, there were always rumors, oh, it was a biological weapon from the very beginning. But when we started trying to get funding, you know, the patient groups uh, said, don't go down that alley, that blind alley, because it's just toxic. People already think Lyme patients are crazy. Well, they, they might act crazy because they have organic brain infection, but, you know, they're not crazy. So what I learned was that, um, you know, Lyme disease was identified the causative organization in, in 81, 82. And as soon as it was discovered, there was sort of a rush to develop a vaccine. And somehow during that process, they, they developed a, an antibody test, which isn't direct evidence of the organism in your body. It's, it's evidence, it's your reaction to an invader of Lyme disease. So it's, a, you know, it's not direct evidence, it's just your reaction. So it's not that precise because if you're really sick, you're not going to create antibodies. And so the test, they took out the two most sort of sensitive, valuable bands because those were going to be used in the vaccine. So automatically define the test that we use now about 30 years later that isn't as precise as it could be because of that vaccine. That vaccine was eventually pulled off the market. So that's one of the reasons the misdiagnosis is bad. The other thing is when they were working on the vaccine, the people who were profiting from the academic researchers who were involved in that vaccine trial, they defined the disease. And most Lyme specialists now say the way they designed that, defined the disease, the symptom list was very narrow and not inclusive. Because once you get down to it, Lyme disease is a neurological infection. It goes into the brain and the joints. And because it uh, affects your nervous system, it can sort of travel around the body and have mm. weird, freaky symptoms and mental symptoms too. So between the bad test and the bad symptom list, somehow we're stuck with it. I think because the people who control the research dollars right now were the dis discoverers of those things or the developers of those things. And they don't want to admit they're wrong, I think. And so slowly, uh, in my opinion, the correct scientific uh, guidelines for diagnosing, or diagnosing it are coming out, but it's just taken a really long time. And um, how does this tie into um, it possibly being a biological weapon created by the government? Well, so after the film was I was done with the film, which is like 2010. Then I concentrated on getting my health back for a year. And then I joined Stanford as a science writer in the medical school, which is a fabulous job. I loved it. And so about that time uh, that I joined Stanford, I was at, randomly at this party and this person there told an old person told me, you know, I said, what did you do for a living? Well, you know, I was in the CIA for my whole career. I was in, I worked for the company, which is sort of the black ops arm of the CIA. And then, then you know, he was, he was in his cops and he told me a bunch of his 
war stories, which were fascinating and very, very apocalypse now, a lot of Vietnam stuff. But towards the end of it, he goes, you know, I did all that stuff, but the strangest thing I ever did was dropped boxes of infected ticks on the Cuban sugarcane workers in 1962. You know, so he had no idea because it was just a randomly large party who I was and just my jaw dropped and my husband was there too. It's just, we couldn't believe. So it was almost like fate telling me, I know you want to be done with Lyme disease, but there's still work to be done. <laughs> so I, a couple times that evening, I ran into the bathroom and took notes of the things he told me. Cause I, I tried to get, you know, like a good journalist, I tried to get as many corroborating details that I could check later on. So I got the name of the operation, which was, uh, Operation Mongoose, and then I got the name of his commanding officers. I mean, one of them was General Lansdale, who's known for a lot of crazy assassination plots for Fidel Castro right after the Bay of Pigs. And so I just, you know, I still didn't want to go down that rabbit hole, so I just tucked those away and saved them for later. But then what happened just a few months later is I had a fil another filmmaker who decided to probe, uh, to, to question Willie Bergdorfer, who was the discoverer of Lyme disease in Hamilton, Montana. And he had a rather long, involved, well-researched interview. And during that time, at the very, very end, Willie Bergdorfer said, um, you know, that he, he thought that the outbreak of what we call Lyme disease, um, that whole outbreak was the result of a biological weapons accident that happened during the Cold War. It was something that his lab in Hamilton, Montana worked on. He didn't say that it was very, a very vague confession. He didn't give any details. He didn't say what the organism is. I didn't know if it was the Borrelia burgdorferi or not, but those two things together, it was, you know, I just looked at him and said, you know, I don't want anybody to go through what my family went through in fighting this disease fighting the insurance companies, horrible cost, the abuse that you got from the medical system saying, you're not really sick, it's all in your head because whatever's in the medical textbooks isn't what you, know, you have. Um, so I said, well, I think I have to see this story to the end and really follow those threads. Is it a biological weapon or not? And so that started this five-year journey that ended up as a book. How, how did you chase down those type of leads? Well, the first thing I did is, you know, I got the documentary confession and then I did a Google search. There's just like nothing in the open uh, literature on the, on the internet about ticks as biological weapons at that time. So then I said, well, oh, about that time when I was uh, researching for the film, I noticed that Willie Brugdorfer had, donated or the lab had collected all his scientific papers from his 34 year career at, at the NIH lab. And it had taken several years to finally post them to the national archives in Maryland. So uh, all of a sudden I realized they had finally finished that process and they were in, in the archive and I could go see them. So first thing I went is I went to the archive and I looked through the 33 boxes of what I thought were all his papers from his career, but it turned out that a huge chunk of the ones of the Lyme discovery were gone, which just made no sense. It's like, well, if he's famous, the only thing he's famous for is the Lyme disease discovery. Why aren't those in the National Archive? So it was mystery. And around that 
time frame, there was another pathogen mentioned, which is called the Swiss agent. And I saw pictures of it, but I didn't know enough about microbiology to know what the Swiss agent was. So I went home, tried to figure it out. I couldn't. So I said, well, I just have to talk to Willy Brugdorfer again. I had talked to him during the film and I knew he hadn't told us any, everything because at the end when we turned off the camera, he says, I didn't tell you everything with a little snicker. So I went out to see him again and I had a rather long interview with him in my hotel. And uh, he, at that time he had advanced Parkinson's. So it was really hard to understand him, but I, mm. I got enough information where he said, Hey, I worked for, the biological weapons program in the U.S. I was a contractor at Fort Detrick, which was the brains of the operation for many years. And when I was there, I worked on uh, putting the entomological warfare program. So we put plague and fleas with the plan to drop them on enemies, uh, really deadly yellow fever it's called the Trinidad agent in mosquitoes. And he said, I was tasked by Detrick to try and get both ticks and mosquitoes to reproduce at a faster rate so they could be mass produced, infected and dropped on the enemy. So <laughs> that was uh, just amazing. But, you know, since he was so sick, it wasn't with Parkinson's, it wasn't proof positive. So that was just the beginning. That was, it was four more years to like find corroborating documents and witnesses to prove the case and were you able to find any documents that that show that the project mongoose actually existed and what it was all about well the cuban tick dropping thing the first uh four years no no evidence you know super frustrating uh there some people in cuba had sued the american government saying they had heard rumors of dropping these insects on the sugarcane workers, but it wasn't until like the very end of 2017, the beginning of 2018, a large collection of Kennedy assassination files were released. And, you know, whenever there's a new batch of Cold War documents, I would go in there with my keywords and just <laughs> into the night search on them. And that's where the ticks came up. And it, uh, in those files, there was uh, from the Kennedy brothers, they were really pissed off that they were um, humiliated in the Bay of Pigs fiasco where spies ambushed them. And so they wanted payback to Fidel Castro. So in, in Operation Mongoose, there were a series of uh, assassination attempts and dropping leaflets and like some of the assassination attempts to Fidel Cuba for Fidel um, were just crazy. Like they would spray syphilis or fungus in his wetsuit because he loved to go diving and they wanted to put a bomb in a beautiful conch shell and put it in an area where he likes to scuba dive and, uh, you know, exploding cigars. And, and so the tick drop was just one of many of these plots to discredit and humiliate Castro. And it was, well, Cuba's number one cash crop is sugar so let's like make all the the workers sick and kill that cash crop and so there was enough um 
corroborating evidence that I felt like I could put it in the book along with the CIA guys. Very compelling testimony where he said he dropped the, the ticks on the workers. They decided that this, this approach didn't work because, you know, when you open a plane door, there's a lot of blowback. And <laughs> some, of the, some of the ticks blew back in the plane and he evidently brought the infected, at least one infected tick back on his clothes and he had a newborn baby at home. And his newborn baby, he thinks, was infected by one of those ticks, almost died of encephalitis, high fever, went into a coma. Um, so that's, you know, that's one of the reasons he felt like he wanted to talk about it. And, and then how does the uh, disease end up spreading, like up in the, uh, in the Northeast? Well, I don't have exact details on that, but uh, uh, I have uh, documentation that, well, what, what happened in 1968? So what I did was, you know, as far as the public knows, Lyme disease started in the mid-70s. And I said, well, it isn't like it just instantly appeared. There have to be like a breadcrumb trial on how, it, how this disease started. You know, you could think of it as an arson. Like you can trace back and see where the first, first cases would be. So I went into newspapers.com and I, I looked up, well, where were there animal and people deaths and everything? And, and looking at the original scientific investigations by Alan Steer of Yale, where he went to Lyme, Connecticut and talked to this housewife, Polly Murray, who had been collecting notes about her sick family and really detailed accounts of her sick family and the neighbors around for since really the late 60s. So from that, I could tell that really the first cases were about 1968. And at that time, there were three freaky new diseases that showed up in that very, very small area on coastal Connecticut and Long Island and Cape Cod and Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket. So that very small circle. And, and the three diseases were this new disease that they called Lyme arthritis. They had no idea how it was spread. Babesiosis, which was the disease I got on Martha's Vineyard, it's, it was uh, a first-in-man cattle disease. This was only the second case in the U.S. that just showed up there. And then there's this sort of freaky, rocky-mounted, spotted fever-like bacterium. It's officially called a rickettsia, which is it's a very small bacterium. And so rocky-mounted spotted fever is also the most deadly tick-borne disease in the U.S. And it they originally, originally identified it in Hamilton, Montana, where the tick lab is. And that's where Willie was developing biological weapons. He was taking various ticks, force-feeding them diseases like Rocky Mountain spotted fever, tularemia, Venezuelan equinus encephalitis, rabies virus, at, you know, for potential weapons for the Cold War military uh, complex. And so that, you know, I, I, I proved that the epidemic started way earlier than we thought, three new germs. And, but somehow when Willie was put on the case, he only focused on Lyme disease uh, mm -hmm. or the Lyme bacterium as the cause of the disease. And he told me, he was told, he said, every one of the Lyme patients that st Steer collected blood for that he tested and most of the ticks he collected had this 
a cousin of Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, which didn't test positive by any of the known rickettsia bacteria that, you know, that was used in the biological weapons program or was domestic. So he felt like in his discovery article, he should have said, hey, there's this other you know, spotted fever-like organism, let's call it Swiss agent, you know, and he was told to cover it up. So my hypothesis in the book is that this other organism, it was the weapon. And uh, they were trying to like distract us from that and hope they could get a vaccine in time. And they blamed all the illness on this other less harmful Lyme bacterium. Um, did they make, do you, do you think they made Lyme disease, Lyme disease like from scratch, like completely engineered it? Or did he modify an existing disease to spread through ticks? Well, so that's a common misperception that the press has run with. And Willie did not say Lyme disease was the biological weapon. He implied it was this other stealth pathogen, the rickettsial, that's like Rocky Mountain spotted fever. So let's look at Lyme disease. Uh, I never found proof that it was weaponized. And it was never on any of the, sh the Pentagon's or the military shortlist of weapons. If you look at the Lyme bacterium, it's very slow growing. Uh, it's hard to measure in the blood uh, and it hides deep into tissue. And so if it's slow growing, well, you can't mass produce it as a weapon. And if it's hard to diagnose and possibly make a vaccine for it, you would never use it in a wartime situation uh, because you couldn't protect your own soldiers. Now, the spotted fever-like organisms, uh, including Rocky Mountain spotted fever, was seriously considered as a bioweapon because you can grow it outside of a living organism and mass produce it and then uh, freeze dry it, uh, powderize it, and then spray it from planes, trucks, automobiles, buoys, frogmen, boats, Mm -hmm. which they did for many of those bacteria that they were weaponizing. So that, you know, that's my theory is the weapon was this rickettsial. They used this Lyme bacterium as uh, a MacGuffin, a, a distraction from what was really causing it. And they were hoping they could just sweep it under the rug and figure out how to cure it all with a vaccine. And then no one would be the wiser. Is there currently a vaccine for Lyme disease now? There was one that was released around 1990 and it went through phase three. They started shipping doses of it, uh, but it was pulled off the market shortly after. And there's controversy on why, you know, the manufacturer said, oh, there was no demand for it. I mean, it was a, not a particularly effective vaccine because you needed three doses in a year and its effectivity wasn't that high. Um, according to some experts. But some of the patients who took the third vaccine said as they took more and more of the vaccine in that year, they, they had some sort of an autoimmune reaction where uh, they claim that the surface proteins that were used in the vaccine were so close to the myelin sheath of human nerves that in certain people it created this you know, chronic inflammation of nerves, which is never a good thing. <laughs> Oh, definitely not. Um, that, you uh, know, if you, look, if you look at the COVID vac, uh, vac, vaccine that's in a trial uh -huh. now, 
they had uh, AstraZeneca had an adverse effect that they were worried about was very, which is very similar. It's right. an autoimmune reaction to some, the person's nervous system. So that caused them to regroup. Interesting. Uh, why is it that like long-term use of antibiotics get rid of the Lyme disease? So that's, that's really the big controversial point about Lyme disease right now, the long-term use. Now, the one thing that everybody agrees on is if you have, if you have the bullseye rash or if you have a positive test, they'll treat you with two to four weeks of either amoxicillin or doxycycline. And so if you get it really early, you're cured. That's great. And usually, even if you have co-infections, you know, if you get the Lyme disease, uh, your body can heal itself and get rid of the other infections like babesiosis. But where, where the controversy comes in is uh, of the people treated early with those antibiotics, well, 15 to 20% go on to be chronically ill. And no one's really, or no one really understands or has studied why they go on to be chronically ill. And so some of the, the clinicians in the field, not the people in the sort of university academic bubbles in the field have found that careful um, administration of combination long-term antibiotics, and these are all safe, uh, out for decades, FDA-approved antibiotics, but the careful administration over time, you can get the germ load down in people so that they can cure themselves. They can heal themselves and move on. Um, but, you know, about the time that the clinicians figured out this protocol and they use two antibiotics. They use one on antibiotic for sort of the mobile form of the Lyme bacterium where it's swimming through the bloodstream and then it finds a safe place in the tissue. And then, but once it's, uh, you blast it with antibiotics, it goes into this cell wallless spherical sort of form. And then those antibiotics don't work. So you have to use a cyst buster antibiotic, which just, uh, somehow it gets into the cysts better. So the, about the time that some of these Lyme clinicians figured out this protocol, that was when all the hospitals went into this frenzy about uh, superbugs in hospitals. So we're talking about MRSA, antibiotic resistant, um, the, the, these MRSAs, which are antibiotic resistance. And so their theory without much data is that, oh, you know, if, we treat all these Lyme patients with all these antibiotics, that's going to create uh, more antibiotic resistant germs at the population level. So all of a sudden there was oversight monitoring boards in the hospital. And if you were a clinician that was uh, prescribing too many antibiotics, you could get in big trouble with administrations and even lose your license because they felt like it was irresponsible. So that's, that's a controversy that continues. And, uh, you know, I think the way to get beyond that is first of all, have a Lyme disease test that actually works in the first month because we don't have that yet. And most people agree with that. It's an antibody test. Your body takes a while to develop antibodies when you're bitten by a Lyme infected tick. And so it can take three, you know, three weeks before you have enough antibodies to actually be measured with the test. So what's happening is people are, are given the test, they're negative in the first month, and they're told you don't have Lyme disease, and they go on to become chronically ill, and then it's really hard to get rid of it with 
just two to four weeks of antibiotics. Wow. I know, I think my dad was on antibiotics for almost four months, I believe it was. It was a long time. Uh, it may have been because of his age, too, because he was in his 80s when he first got it. Mm-hmm. Um, is there any relation between, like, uh, uh, Lyme disease and, say, other weaponized uh diseases such as anthrax? Well, like I said, um, I, I, I don't think that Lyme disease was weaponized. The, the Lyme bacterium was weaponized. What They did weaponize the ticks, though. So one of the experiments I document in the book is the Lone Star tick experiments on the Virginia coastline. So before the 60s, lone, well, first of all, Lone Star ticks, what are they? They're like the badass ticks of, of the tick world. Uh, deer tick don't have eyes, and they just, the way they find their prey is they sit on the top of a gla- blade of grass or on a, a wooden bench, and they just wave their little hands around, and when they smell carbon dioxide emitted from mammals, they grab on a passing mammal, like a leg of a human, and they crawl up. Now, uh, you know, they don't have eyes. They just sense CO2. Now, lone star ticks have rudimentary eyes, so they can actually stalk their prey. So they'll sense the carbon dioxide and they'll, you know, they'll swarm a mammal, a deer, a human. And they also have extra long proboscis. They create more infections. They carry that spotted fever organism that uh, is my theory is the weapon. And before you know, in the 40s, 50s, these ticks were only south of the Mason-Dixon line, you know. And what happened is the Army funded this researcher in near Norfolk, Virginia. They said, well, if, if we're going to drop ticks on our enemy, we want to know how far they spread. I found this new document two days ago, and I'll read it to you, on, on why they thought it was great to, like, put germs in, in ticks, which are arthropods, and then drop them on the enemy. They say, this is an army document, in bioweapons, the use of arthropod disease vectors represents a further possibility for increasing area coverage. For in a sense, an infected arthropod is a minute self-dispersing weapon. It possesses the additional attractions of providing uh, under the skin and under the skin bioweapon attack and of shielding the agent from degrading environmental factors. So they're saying, Oh, you know, we could spray anthrax over the enemy, but if we put it in, you know, inside a tick, uh-huh. we'll drop the ticks. No one will know we did it. For years, it will crawl. So back to this Virginia Army-funded experiment. This scientist took hundreds of thousands of Lone Star ticks. He made them radioactive, and he gridded off this big marshy field and the swampy coastal Virginia area and he dropped a thousand ticks in each square and then he would go out every month he'd collect the ticks in each square over these acres and he'd take them back to the lab and he used a Geiger counter because they're radioactive for life and he could tell how far this the ticks had spread over months to years uh and that he would give that data back to the army so they would know okay you know uh if we 
drop this on Kiev, we can cover the whole city in, in a year. So he did that between, I think, 65, 66, 67. And then all these ticks, these Lone Star ticks, which were only um, south of the uh, south U.S., all of a sudden they're in right on Long Island in Connecticut uh, two years later. So they're really aggressive ticks and they're displacing the native ticks where somehow the ecosystem has reached a balance, you know, Lyme disease isn't a really big problem and, and Rocky Mountain spotted fever isn't a big problem, but all of a sudden these ticks that carry Rocky Mountain spotted fever and who knows what else, you know, start killing people on Long Island. And so really the spotted fever epidemic and the people dying and ending up in comas in the hospitals, what drew Willie Bergdorfer out of Hamilton, Montana, investigate uh, what later was all attributed to Lyme disease. Hmm. Um, have they ever considered, do you think, or do you, have you found any evidence of them using, you know, like mosquito-borne diseases like malaria or dengue fever? So the mosquito uh, experiments were public before I started my book. And uh, though, I don't know, yeah, I guess the yellow fever was, but the yellow fever in mosquitoes was a known tactic, and I think they were designing it for Vietnam, though it's not really, there's no hard evidence that they really dropped these infected mosquitoes on Vietnam, though some people feel like they have a really good circumstantial case. But um, what they would do is they do trial run pilot studies on these mosquitoes, which Willie worked on trying to get them to reproduce faster for this test along with the fleas. But what they would do is they would somehow disperse them from planes and they did two tests. One was in Georgia. I think it was in the fifties. I'm not sure the year that, and then one was in Florida and they were over uh, really poor African American towns. And what they did is so diabolical. They had military people dressed up in white sort of public health uniforms saying, oh, we're just, you know, we're just checking to see your mosquito. Can you put this mosquito trap in your house? And, you know, the conclusion of that study, which I think was called Big Buzz, was that uh, mosquitoes are incredibly, an incredibly effective way of spreading disease because they can get through any screen, as we know, any cracked window. Uh, through clothes. So that was the trial run. And we don't know if they used it on Vietnam. So, so they, they were definitely working on it, but there's no evidence that they've actually used it. On, in Vietnam, right. Right. Um, there, there are eyewitness testimonies from American flyboys. But there was a very uh, concerted campaign by the army to say, oh, they were just tortured. And those were forced confessions that they saw, saw that happen. Well, I guess that was Korea. I'm talking about Korea. Okay. Um, is there any evidence that the U.S. government, I mean, like absolute hard evidence that the U.S. government has used biological weapons on Americans living on U.S. soil? Um, there, uh, there are, so there's tularemia, which is called rabbit fever. That's a little bacterium. It can also be spread by ticks. They, 
they figured out a way to mass produce tularemia in large vats, aerosolize it, and they did some live trials in a remote area of Alaska, which is U.S. soil. They also did tularemia experiments, spraying it um, on Baker Island, which is right off Hawaii. Not right off, but it's off of Hawaii. And I think that's an American, that's American soil officially. So, yes. And then they did simulants. They, for anthrax, you know, they didn't want to use live anthrax in doing their pilot studies. So they used this, these two bacteria, um, Bacillus globigii and Serratia, and which is very similar to the physical characteristics of anthrax. And they did, did a test in the, in the 50s from a ship. They sprayed those live bacteria over the San Francisco Bay, and they pretty much concluded they had sensors all over the bay that it would have covered the whole bay. And, you know, if it was anthrax, they could have killed hundreds of thousands of people. At that time, their experts said, well, these live bacteria will not hurt people. But it sent, I think, about a dozen people to Stanford Hospital and one immunocompromised person, Edward Nevins, died. So, mm. And then they did a test of similar organisms, I can't remember which one, on the New York subway. They filled a light bulb with those live bacteria. As a subway went by, they were standing on the street level and they smashed the light bulb on the grate and the vacuum created by the subway rushing down the tracks sucked in the bacteria. They had about 20 uh, stealth CIA people with sniffers all over the subway system and they pretty much concluded, oh yeah, we could have wiped out most of New York <laughs> if, if that bacteria had been anthrax. So these were, you know, our best and brightest in the army. And they, at that time, I mean, most people don't know our biological weapons program was almost as big as the Manhattan nuclear project. And uh -huh. they were competing for Pentagon dollars and they did uh -huh. these really outrageous experiments on the unsuspecting public. So they could say, see, this is a serious threat to us. The commies could do this to us. So that's why you need to give us more research dollars. That's crazy. It is. I couldn't believe some, some of the things I read. I just couldn't believe it. Our government scares me a little bit. Yeah. Well, and it's, <laughs> it's like these are things that happened 50 years ago. And I think right. they need to come clean and release these documents. Yeah. I, I have a theory that um, if if they can do it, somebody out there is doing it, basically, you know. Um, so how about the, uh, the current virus with COVID-19? Do you have any theories on that? Well, um, it, you know, going through the research that I went through, the five years of research, it's like, well, yeah, it could happen. And, you know, one of the the exercises I went through in trying to figure out was this, this outbreak of illness around Lyme, Connecticut, and Long Island in the late sixties, you know, was that caused by a biological weapons um, uh, outbreak? And there are guidelines that say the things you look for, you look for, and, you know, so I followed those scientific guidelines that our biosecurity people would, 
in the U.S. when they look at something like COVID? You know, first of all, is it a point source outbreak? Yeah. You know, both the, um, the COVID, you know, broke out, was an outbreak in Wuhan. You know, the, the three organisms I talked about earlier all were an outbreak in a very small uh, diameter area that's centered around Long Island. Uh-huh. And, and then also, you know, is there an unusual amount of mortality and morbidity? Did, or is it like a way higher sort of sickness rate than you would see in the seasonal flu? In both cases, yes. You know, were there unusual sort of animal and human die-offs? Yes. You know, so you look at those clues and it, it does seem to be, uh, you know, to me, the, the COVID outbreak just seems like it could be man-made. I, it doesn't seem deliberate to me because if it was deliberate, they would have released it in multiple places. But it seems to me started off as one strain. But of course, you know, we, it's gonna, I don't know if we'll ever know or if it'll take a long time to know because the Chinese government is possibly the most secretive government on the planet right now. So right. we're going to... We're going to have to wait and see how this unfolds because there's so many really smart people working on it right now. And right now we need to concentrate on just controlling the spread and working on a vaccine. Hmm. See, I was thinking that maybe China got mad at us for slapping tariffs on them. So they released the virus on us. Well, but they seem to be suffering, or they seem to have suffered as much as we have, because we don't know the true true death numbers. But, you know, I just, I don't know. I'm not in a position to know. I'm just saying the initial outbreak feels man-made to me. We know they were working on those bat viruses there. It would have been really easy easy for some sort of... uh, the virus to get out with a lab worker and he would go to Wuhan meat market and, you know, he would spread, he would cough and spread it to other people. So like with the Lyme, the Lyme outbreak, I haven't found any evidence that it was deliberate. Of course, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but uh, Willie Brugdorfer said he thought it was an accident. That's what it seems like to me. It seems like, we were doing a bunch of aerosolized experiments, the government meaning we, uh, the government, about that time. And they were releasing non-native ticks that, were, that spread, were very good at spreading disease, and they all sort of converged as a perfect storm in this area. Also, there's Plum Island Animal Research Island, which was working on animal bioweapons. Right. That's where they found the Montauk monster. Yeah, which, which I don't know if it's a monster, but yeah. So to me, it seems like perfect storm of a bunch of accidents, but, you know, hopefully we'll get to those documents and, or find an eyewitness and we'll know, but you just never know. Do you think that like, like I know like I'm where I'm from, um, right after nine 11, there was like an anthrax scare, like right in my neighborhood, like our post office, had anthrax in it and we had to like take our post office and put it in, like this big plastic tent and hmm. for a while like when we got our mail we would, would literally put our mail through a microwave <laughs> and, and we'd get mail like it would be all burned up and stuff so you know and, I, and i'm guessing that the person who did that had to have made this biological weapon in their garage 
Well, I talked to the people that analyzed it at Fort Detrick and, uh, and I read several books about it. The, there were two different strains of the anthrax. The first one wasn't really, was sort of like you could have made it out of a home lab, but the second one was highly weaponized. I mean, it, so Bruce Ivins was in charge of investigating it when they gave, you know, this is a story I heard from the people who were there. They, they had this envelope come in and it was in a plastic baggie and they said, oh, someone says, you know, in the post office, they got this anthrax mailing or it could have been from the senator's office. I don't know. And Bruce Ivins goes, oh, oh not another one of those quack jobs. It's probably baby powder. And so with, without any protective gear, which was very irresponsible, he ripped it open and slammed it on the ground. And all of a sudden they saw this powder rise up uh, and it rose up in such an unnatural way. It was just a sign. They knew it. It was a sign of a weaponized anthrax and they all of a sudden freaked out and uh, the alarm bells rang and they did the right thing. But uh, you know, the second strain in the envelopes was seriously weaponized. And the people I talked to said there's, they didn't have the equipment at Dietrich hot zone uh, in, in the bio level four area to make that. So their theory is it was from outside the lab. Of course, Bruce Ivins took the fall for that and he never went to trial. So we don't know. Do you think like, uh, if it could have been made in somebody, somebody's garage and it wasn't made in our lab, then it probably would have had to been made by another government. Or from a, confer- uh, a bioweapons commercial lab here who want after 9-11 wanted to justify more funding. So that would be a false flag kind of operation. Blame it on a Middle Easterner when it was someone like the people that staged the San Francisco Bay attack or the subway attack. Oh, you, oh, Congress, you don't think this is a real threat. Well, we'll do a small, you know, trial and see what you think now. So that's what some people have thought, you know, I'm, it's just not my area of expertise. So, yeah, I don't know. I never thought of that angle. It's interesting. Yeah. Scary too. All this stuff kind of scares the crap out of me. Honestly. Yeah, yeah, really evil. <laughs> I mean, you did. I I would say that was uh, that was a byproduct. I mean, something that I had to fight against when I was researching this story because it's really dark and it's like something so unimaginable. I never would have thought that our government would do this kind of thing. It's really a crime against humanity because. A biological weapon is so indiscriminate. It's not like a bomb you could target on a military facility. It affects everyone, men, women, old people, children, uh, the innocent, the people who haven't signed up for this war. You know, and their idea was, oh, um, let's develop these incapacitating agents that we put in these insects, well, arthropods officially. And it's perfect because, first of all, if we're, we want to do this total economic warfare, we want to take over a city. If we bomb it, then we have to rebuild. That's going to take years, you know, but these stealth biological weapons like ticks infected, you know, it, it keeps the area dangerous for a long time. You can't protect yourself with 
clothing, um, you tie up, instead of tying up one undertaker to bury someone, you tie up 10 healthcare workers and family members taking care of this chronically ill person. But hey, you can still question them on how to run the city's power plant or granary or mm-hmm. uh, et cetera. What also scares me is I think when, if a government's going to be making these type of weapons, you know, typically I would think that they're always going to put in some type of fail safe too, to, to stop it if it gets out of control. But it seems like they don't want to use those fail safes because then it gives them away. Well, their fail safes were, you know, they had a short list of biological weapons. They would have a vaccine for their people. Both the Russians and America, America had that. So, you, you know, you spend maybe 10 years refining a biological weapon and and then you you know the candidates that get put on the shelf for deployment you know have this vaccine or some way to protect your right. own people but the problem that i saw was during the 10 years of uh like trial and error to find the best combination of this and that and pilot testing and you do it in the lab and you know in the lab or remote test areas it can still get out and there are many documented accidents and then, then you do field trials. And the danger, I think, was in the late 60s, they were doing all these field trials with uh, live organisms. And in the case of ticks, they thought they were doing experiments with clean ticks that were raised in the labs. But, you know, it's hard to control cross-infections when, for example, with Willie Brugdorfer at, at, in Hamilton, Montana, Rocky Mountain Labs, they were they they had all sorts of tick borne diseases there, and you know once in a while he would ship ticks and he'd find out oh they have a deadly relapsing fever in them and he'd have to tell whoever he sent the ticks to hey these really weren't clean ticks uh, you need to destroy this whole batch so when I look at this experiment with hundreds of thousands of ticks released in Virginia on the Atlantic Bird Flyway and a year or two later these ticks have moved up to Long Island, the question I ask is if these ticks originally came from a bioweapons facility uh, and did they have viruses or other bacterium that they maybe didn't know about and they released them in the environment. So it's unknown. Back in the late 60s, they didn't really have good tools for uh, identifying and screening for viruses. Yeah. Uh, I just, you think they would have a way to kill the ticks basically i mean you you can't vaccinate everybody quickly enough to prevent you know people being hurt by the virus so you would think maybe at least i would think like wouldn't they have some kind of way to to just kill the ticks like a certain group of them well uh you know when you have a pesticide it affects a lot of insects. Uh, And the other thing is insects are a complicated food source in our ecosystem. Like if you were to wipe out all the mosquitoes, you would wipe out a huge population of birds and bats because that's what they eat. Ticks, there's certain birds that eat those. Also, there's one theory that says ticks are valuable in our uh, 
ecosystem because they do harbor these viruses and sometimes they inject these viruses in people and the viruses help mammals maybe mutate, you know, create mutations. And some of the mutations are harmful, but some of the mutations help them survive during changes in the environment. So that that's, you know, when people ask, well, what good are ticks for? Well, you know, sometimes the things they carry are good. I can see that happening. That makes sense. Um, can I ask you a hypothetical question? Sure. If you were to make a biological weapon that's going to spread through insects, um, would Lyme disease be the perfect way to do that, or do you would you choose some other disease? Uh, no, it would. It's not a good. It's not a good candidate, and I think that's what the Pentagon officials or the, the bioweapons designers at Fort Detrick finally decided, it's like, no, this is not a good one. And so the, the weapons they chose were, you know, on their short list, you can see these written down in archives, is they really like anthrax, they like tularemia, Venezuelan equine encephalitis, um, botch, botula, botulinum toxin, and... Uh, this SEB, which is a E. coli toxin. And then what the Russians and the Americans were doing, you know, their perfect biological weapon before the program was shut down by Nixon was, and the Russians probably kept doing it. It was what I call sort of a Russian doll strategy. They would get uh, a bacterium and they uh, feed, they grow it in mass quantities and they'd feed it on a medium that included a virus and a toxin. So, these bacterium would be locked and loaded, then they'd freeze dry them so they could be sprayed over large areas. And so people would breathe them in and uh, they would get sick with uh, like confusing set of symptoms. They would give them antibiotics and it would kill the bacterium and then release the virus and the toxin and the person would, person's immune system would be completely overwhelmed. It would be a cytokine storm and they would die a horrible, painful death, and there'd be nothing you could do. It's like, they would call that like overwhelming dose. Um, how about like the other way around, using insects to vaccinate people without them knowing they're being vaccinated against something? Well, they could do that. But again, I think what happened in the early 60s is the military mind said, you know, this is... <laughs> You can't control insects, try as you might, you know. <laughs> so we're just going to take one living system out of the equation and just work on the bacterium, the bacteria or the viruses and weaponize that. Right. Now, it, the interesting current day case study to look at is, you know, we had the Zika problem in, in South America and it came up here. So they said, well, let's try to modify the mosquitoes. And they, they created large amounts of sterile male mosquitoes. And they thought, well, they'll mate with the females. And then, you know, that'll cut down the, the mosquito population in, in an infected area and also the Zika infections. But when they actually studied it in real life conditions, they realized it had the opposite effect. Uh, somehow releasing, I haven't read the details, but somehow releasing the sterile mosquitoes caused in the populations to rise and it had no effect on the Zika. So, uh, you know, nature, insects and arthropods, they, they reproduce 
generationally so much faster than humans. So it's really hard to control what happens, you know, with that many generations thrashing. Yeah. And, and I guess also when we, we do these things and then the insect goes out into the wild, it is exposed to other diseases could possibly like two diseases merge together and mutate into something new. Well, uh, that happens with viruses all the time. They call it transfection. Viruses have a way of like snipping pieces of DNA in and out of live organisms. And, and actually that, that mechanism of transfections can be used for good, for good too. I mean, they're, that's used um, in biology for cures of certain things. So it's just, you know, <laughs> there's a certain wild card thing that can happen when you mess with nature. What is your take on like um, anti-vaxxers? Do, do you think that their argument about vaccines causing uh, autism is a valid argument? Well, the whole vaccine issue is really, really complicated. I mean, I vaccinated all my kids. Um, but in my opinion, what I think has happened is I, I think between new newborns from newborns to when the kids go to school, they get a tremendous number of vaccines, I think 60 or something like that. And I don't think there've been any really well-documented studies on the effect of having a bunch of vaccines really closely spaced on young immune systems. So I, for, for some kids who have like a certain genetic makeup, it could be catastrophic for them. So I wish we had more research on that. But um, as far as the autism link, that's a really complicated sort of landmine kind of issue that I'm not well versed in. Uh, so I, I just don't even want to go there. <laughs> but but I, we need more studies on, you know, should our kids really be getting this many vaccines and are we adequately studying the cross, you know, the pylon effect um, mm. of this assault on a young immune system? Do you think that the government could use vaccines to modify human DNA, changing, you know, a child's development as they grow up to make them more susceptible to like suggestion and mind control and stuff like that. I, I don't have any data on that. <laughs> I mean, I think, uh, you know, the CIA tried to do that a little bit in the cold war. Right. That's there, kind of like what I'm talking about, like that MK ultra kind of stuff. Yeah. So I have to say at Fort Detrick, there was a, a bubble of CIA people, you know, at Fort Detrick and they, they work together on some projects that are secret, including MK Ultra. And I mean, some there were some components that involved biological weapons with MK Ultra and MK Naomi. So I tried to, you know, I tried to dig into that, but a lot of those documents are hard to get to. Um, so it's from the same brilliant out of the box thinkers who had not enough morals or bioethical underpinnings in my opinion you know i think a lot of this came out too 
you know, after World War II, you know, we, we, we got all those Nazi scientists and those crazy ideas and started experimenting with them. Yeah, so the, that was sort of eye-opening to me and shocking, you know, that after World War II, we, we, got, we brought back a certain number of German scientists through Operation Paperclip, and we picked the brains of the, the Japanese who did really horrendous biological weapons experiments on the Chinese. And we took their ideas, but then we supersized them, you know, with the Yankee know-how and we took them to new levels. <laughs> uh, so that was really upsetting. And, you know, Willie Bergdorfer, who worked on biological weapons, he said he, he worked with some of those German scientists at Dietrich. And he told me that in his German accent, they were very nice people. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, mean, I imagine with some of them would be a lot of probably wanted, never wanted to be a part of, you know, the Nazi thing. They just, they didn't have a choice. They were just trying to survive. Well, I, I think, uh, we did things, you know, with the biological weapons program and the nuclear weapons program, I think we did things just as ab abhorrent as the Nazis. So that was a hard thing to take because Americans have this mythology in their head, you know, we're the best country, we're somehow morally more, more clean. But really, when you dive into the biological weapons program, it's just like, wow, they went, they did some dark things. There was no oversight in some of the things they did as far as um, is this the right thing for mankind to do? I, I love that quote by Ian Malcolm, uh, the science, the science or the chaos theory expert in Jurassic Park. Uh -huh. uh, and he says, he says to the person trying to, you know, invent a harmless dinosaur, you know, just because the scientists can do it doesn't mean they should. You know? <laughs> so, so that's, that sums up what was wrong with this whole Cold War program, in my opinion, it just just got out of control. Even even the people in the Pentagon, when they were going over all these crazy anti Fidel Castro programs, they called this unit a rogue elephant. It was just a completely out of control, bloated animal that they couldn't stop. Yeah, and like right, we started this uh, episode. You know, I said like. You know, I, I kind of, I really believe that um, if it can be done, somebody out there is doing it. You know, some government, some person, someone's doing it. And, well, um, yeah. So you look at a, a modern day example of that is cloning humans. So there was exactly this, what I was thinking, actually. <laughs> so there's this Chinese postdoc who worked in a lab at Stanford and you know, he's conceptually learned how to do the cloning. And then he went back to China and he decided he was going to clone a human being. And he called to get advice from a professor at Stanford. And, you know, he told him, well, this is how you do it, but you know, you really shouldn't do it. You know, <laughs> but you know, he went back to China and he said, Oh, I have approval from my, um, my superiors. It's no problem. And, and then what came out was he thought he was going to, you know, he had these two cloning, he cloned two twin baby girls 
the parents had AIDS or one of the parents had AIDS and he thought, well, I, I modified these babies so they won't get AIDS, you know, but, but when the experts really looked at what he did in his little thought bubble, they realized that he had changed a massive amount of their DNA and, you know, there could be repercussions for the human race down the road if these females reproduced with whatever he modified with the genomes. Now that scientist now is in jail because I guess the people in his country agreed that he was out of line. But you could, like you're saying, if someone can do it, they'll try it because there's a pressure, you know, he's in, he's a young researcher. Hey, there's a lot of competition to have, you know, to climb up the ladder and get funding for your research. And he crossed a line. Yeah. Yeah. And we don't even have to go as far as cloning now, I think too. And I know I've made some of my friends pretty mad about this, but um, when it was like a whole bunch of like the um, school shootings and stuff, like the mass shootings, you know, and and people are like, well, what could cause that? And, you know, and that's, this was just like a theory that I made up. I have nothing to back this up, but it obviously was a sensitive topic. And I said, well, my theory is if maybe if we looked into it, maybe it's because of in vitro fertilization, you know, maybe all these kids were developed out of some kind of in vitro fertilization project. And man, did I make some people angry with that one? Well, I mean, I don't, I, I haven't seen any evidence for that, but what I do, what I do see is, you know, being immersed in the tick-borne disease world, I see a lot of, especially young kids being written off as having schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, and they get put on all these psych drugs and that are treating the symptoms, maybe not so well. And then years down the road, they realize they had a tick-borne disease that invades the brain and it's creating chronic inflammation. And, you know, once they're treated with antibiotics, they go back to living normal lives. Would you just be able to tell that by doing like a CAT scan or an MRI? Well, sometimes, uh, so with tick-borne diseases, especially Lyme disease, you give an MRI and it shows the hard structures of the brain. And usually on an MRI, really the damage done by Lyme disease inflammation only shows up when they're like practically dead. Mm. A more... A better test is this PET scan, which shows sort of the white matter of the brain, the f- squishy fluids, you know, and then it's easier to see the, the, the damage with that, but that's not sort of mainstream protocol right now. So that's what I hear from the, well, that's what happened with us is the PET scan, the MRI did not show the damage. The PET uh-huh. scan sh- clearly showed the damage in our brain, which is just massive inflammation because these Lyme bacteria shed a tremendous amount of cells uh, as they live inside of you. They create, create just, just so much inflammation that your brain can't function in a normal way. And did, did you and your husband like fully recover a hundred percent or um, is there like some kind of permanent damage that you're left with for the rest of your life? Um, in, in my case, uh, I think I'm 
back to normal, age adjusted. My husband had a couple relapses uh, and now he's great. That's great to hear that you're both doing well. Yeah. I mean, I hope it gives people hope. And my advice to anyone who's been chronically ill with what they think is a tick-borne disease is find an expert has treated a lot of patients because a lot of, especially infectious disease specialists, they were taught the old school definition of the disease. And I think our understanding is, uh, progressing at a rapid rate, but somehow it's not making it into the infectious disease bastions in universities. I've seen it time and time again, and it's just too bad because it just, that closed mindedness destroys lives. Yeah. And and I guess that's what you're trying to do, you know, with your book and your documentary is bring awareness to this so it can be properly diagnosed and treated before it gets too bad. Right, because that's what everybody agrees. Early treatment, early diagnosis and treatment, it's a non-problem. And hopefully we'll have a vaccine someday. Yeah. Um, that, I mean, the main, I would say the main takeaway I wanted to, to ha- have with the book is we, we need a lot more research. So what I found is that the Lyme discovery in 8182, uh, we sort of blamed everything all the illness on Lyme disease. And what the, my book says, it's more complicated that the co-infections are complicating the course of the disease and everybody in the scientific, or most people in the scientific community are ignoring that. And there could be bioweaponized co-infections that got out into the environment, you know, during this evil Cold War um, period. I mean, Willie Bergdorfer, who was in the bioweapons design business said that, other people have intimated that. So let's do more research, find out what's in the ticks, um, DNA sequence them, and let's have the, the government release the hidden documents on these experiments so we know what organisms were released from planes or insects or bugs uh, in what places. So we'll save research dollars and we'll know how to treat these people. Is there any type of organization um, that that is out there that people can contact to support this type of research? There are a lot of really good foundations right now uh, that have come a long way since I got Lyme disease in 2002. So for patient advice on diagnosis, treatment, finding a doctor, I like LymeDisease.org. For physicians, uh, there's a lot of clinical guidelines and that's ILADS.org, and that's I-L-A-D-S. It's International Lyme Disease Society. Uh, And then for research, there are two really good research organizations. I mean, they're not the only ones. They're just the biggest ones. So Bay Area Lyme Foundation uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area, they've been really uh, contributing a lot to the the brightest young scientists on – diagnostics and testing and they have a Lyme tissue biobank because it's really important to have tissue of people who have died of it or suffering from it because uh, for future research and then uh, GLA, which is global Lyme Alliance on the East coast and Lyme disease association. Those two do a lot of good research too. So 
Uh, those yeah. those are the go to. Yeah. You can replay this to get info. You know, to get. I was going to say if you could email me those links, I can drop oh, okay. them in the notes for the podcast, and oh, then okay, my listeners can go right into the notes and get those links. Yeah, yeah. Because that would be really helpful if any of my listeners think they might have Lyme disease or one of their family members might have it. Then they can, you know, go to these places to find out more information. Yeah. So LymeDisease.org has a really good checklist. And then, you know, the thing I tell people is uh, if you have a doctor who doesn't believe you have Lyme disease, but you, you in your gut, listen to your gut, you know, get a second opinion from someone who's treated a lot. Like, for example, if you had some rare brain tumor, you wouldn't go to your GP to cut it out, you know, you, or treat it. You would go to an oncologist who had cured, you know, a thousand people with that, or at least treated a thousand people and knew what worked, what didn't work. Because it's not like you have one disease. You can have, you know, there are 20 different diseases that can be transmitted by a tick, and you don't know what combination you have. And new research out of Columbia uh, on Long Island saying, well, multiple infections in a tick are the rule rather than the exception. You know, a lot of ticks have the combination that I had, which is Lyme disease and babesiosis and babesia. And that, (laughs) it's serious. Yes. Um, and how about your documentary? Is, is it anywhere where people can watch it? Like, is it on Netflix or Amazon? So you can order it from uh, the director. His site is Open Eye Pictures. Or you can look up underourskin.com and it's, you can order it that way if you want a DVD. Uh, it is streaming for either zero or very little money Um in multiple places on the internet. I haven't, it changes a lot. So I'll check and send you those URLs too. All right. Awesome. And the title of the book is secret history of Lyme disease and biological weapons. Bitten, bitten's in the front. Bitten. Yeah. And the good news is it, uh, there's a crew working on a documentary based on the story. Cause I, I have to say it's not a dry history book or, uh, just the facts, ma'am. It is, uh, I made it into a story which centers around the Lyme disease discoverer, Willie Bergdorfer, and his, his journey from Switzerland to getting sucked into the biological weapons program of being infected by the germ that he discovered, and then about him deciding to talk about, you know, sort of the dark parts of the biological weapons program in the end before he died. Do you think like he was trying to send out a warning? I think he felt guilty about the unintended consequences of his work. Yeah, that's probably, he's probably not the first scientist to feel that, I'm sure. Oppenheimer, yeah, you could see it in (laughs) Oppenheimer's eyes. And, you know, I hopefully you'll get to see Willie during his confession in the documentary and you know, that was the last scene where uh, my friend asked him, do you think the organism you worked on in the 50s that you were weaponizing was what was making people sick in and around Lyme, Connecticut? And, you know, he, he didn't answer that question right away. And he, there's this pregnant pause. You can see the conflict traveling across his face. He takes a deep breath and he says, yeah like more in German than in English. (laughs) And to me, when I saw that and I watched it over and over again, I said, that guy is telling the truth. 
And, you know, I think it needs to come out before he dies. Well, it's great that you're getting all this information out. And, and I can't wait to see this, the uh, documentary on Bitten. Yeah, it should be good. It's a, it's a really, uh, the director is Josh Zeman, who um, did the, the documentary Murder Mountain. And he's working on a really great true crime documentary on Son of Sam. That sounds murder. interesting. Yeah, it's coming out on Netflix. So that's super exciting. Cool. Well, thanks for being on the show. And uh, when the documentary comes out, you're definitely welcome to come back on. All right. I would love to. So thanks for the invitation. Yeah, always. And uh, to my listeners, this was uh, Chris Newby. Her book, Bitten, The Secret History of Lyme Disease and Biological Weapons. And she's going to send me all these links, and they will be in the notes of this episode. Thank you for being on the show. Thanks, and have a good evening. I hope you survived this hurricane that's about to hit you. Yes. <laughs> I love uh, natural disasters. <laughs> yeah. Well, we listened to one today. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All Thanks right. for being on the show. Thanks, Gary. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable. Please like and review this podcast on whatever platform you are using. It helps this podcast move up in the ranks and easier for people to find. Also, tell your friends, family, co-workers, and even that weird uncle. You tell it be that weird uncle. If anyone wants to be a guest, you can email me at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and LinkedIn. My website is www.everythingimaginable2020.com. On Patreon, is patreon.com forward slash everythingimaginable. You can make a donation to support this podcast. Remember, everything that is was first imagined. Thank you for listening, and see you next week. You know, yes, you can also buy my book, Enlightenment Guarantee, the only book on Zen you'll ever need. It's available on Amazon, Kindle, and paperback.